1: From KQED.
2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. You know, at any given time, polls show that roughly a quarter of Americans are trying to lose weight. And a very solid majority of Americans across genders have been on a diet. And yet research shows time and again that very few people succeed in losing weight and as every diet ad says, keeping it off. This morning, we're going to be talking with the creators of a new Bloomberg podcast, Losing It, that investigates the myths and the realities of nutritional science and the power of the dieting industry. We'll learn about the invention of the calorie as a weight loss tool, the branding of the South Beach diet, and the complex relationship between what we define as real, actual health and those numbers that show up on the scale. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. You know, when I set out to run my first marathon, you know, some years ago, I didn't do it explicitly to lose weight, but I did not want to lose weight running 40 miles a week, you know? So it came as a bit of a surprise to me when I weighed myself after having gutted out the race and found that I'd gained a pound from when I would started training. All that to say, the relationship between how much you exercise, what you eat, and your weight remains something of a mystery to me, and I know I'm not alone in that. At the same time, I feel bombarded with images of perfect fatless bodies and a wash and advice about how to be the perfect amount, muscular or thick or thin. No one wants to say they're dieting, and yet it seems like many people are dieting, even if they call it something-something wellness. Enter the health desk at Bloomberg News. They've got a new season of their podcast out called Losing It, and it's a deep dive into the science and history of weight loss. And they're here to shed light, not pounds, on this subject for us. Kristen Brown, edited Losing It. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. And Emma Court, host of the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having us, uh, Emma. Let's start with you. If we're going to talk about dieting, it feels like we need to talk about this modern tool uh, of dieting, the calorie. So, like, where did the calorie get invented, basically as a as a weight loss tool?
3: Um, well, thanks again for having us on. Uh, really excited to be here. Um, Like a lot of things in sort of diet history, the calorie dates back to the 19th century, and there was a fellow named Wilbur Olin Atwater who, um, you know, had learned about the calorie, uh, really wanted to kind of bring it to the American public, and he's kind of considered the father of nutritional science here in the U.S., um, and he did all this work to sort of figure out how many calories were in different foods in America. And he also helped kind of publicize it and get the word out to um, the American public, which he, you know, started and, and it became quite effective by the sort of 1900s, 1920s. It was, you know, a popular new approach to, you guessed it, losing weight. Right.
2: Because he basically starts to say, eat Fewer calories than you expend, right? I mean, this is sort of the classic calorie in, calorie out idea.
3: Well, he he was really an innovator of the calorie, um, but that a lot of people seized on this idea. Um, You know, he had a very kind of like almost economically minded approach to the calorie. He wanted to sort of find efficient ways of feeding the American working man, and um, a lot of ideas that we have now about sort of like what are the best ways to build muscle versus fat and things like that. You know, he was interested in in those things too back in the uh, 1800s.
4: One of my favorite tidbits that Emma uncovered is the calorie wasn't actually originally invented to measure the energy in food. It's just a measurement of energy, period. Right. So
3: when they were originally talking about calories in the you know mid-early 1800s, They were talking about it in terms of powering things like steam engines. And then scientists kind of took this idea and said, How can we figure out, you know, how much energy is in food? And they started applying calories. And you'll see actually it's applied very unevenly today. You know, you sometimes see kilojoules. You know, they use big C calories versus little C calories. So there's a lot of disparities huh. in terms of how we even talk about this simple idea about food and dieting.
2: Oh, and it's so interesting too because of course through time people have used the, our technologies as like metaphors for ourselves, right? So we're like machines then, now maybe we're like networks and other that's a, that's a fascinating uh, component of this yeah. You know, we've got a great cut from your podcast of uh, a guy named Giles Yo, Giles Yo, who's a sort of, let's call him a, a critic of the calorie describing the calorie's appeal The calorie is an attractive measure because it is a simplified number in in which you can sort of put in front of an item of food. And people think the higher the number, the worse the food. In very, put simplistically, in the environment, the lower number, the better the food, healthier it is for you. But that is not true. So, Kristen Brown, um, how is that not true?
4: Well, I think that the calorie is this thing that in our mind, we want it to be concrete, right? And I mean, I have done this uh, like you, Alexis. I have spent time thinking about weight. How do I lose weight? I've downloaded an app like MyFitnessPal and meticulously tracked every single calorie I consume down to, you know, weighing a carrot to see how many calories it might have. But when you really get into what a calorie is, it doesn't make sense To to use it that way, to meticulously measure exactly every little bit that you consume, that's just not what it does. And so I think that scientists are now thinking about how do we be healthy, how do we consider our weight and our health. They're now asking is counting every single thing efficient? And I think the answer is no.
3: And in fact, arguably, you can't count every single calorie. I think there's this, like Kristen said, this illusion of preciseness, right? We Mm -hmm. see, you know, calories down to like, you know, 152 calories on a a pack (laughs) of chips or something, right? Um, But that's just an illusion of, of being precise and accurate. And, you know, people calorie count, like Kristen said, they count every single calorie. But You know, the problem is there's some element of misinformation in the mix here, right? Because the calories on food are not always accurate. They can be wrong. And even when they might be accurate to the food, they don't always reflect what your body is getting out of that food, because people process food in different ways. And that's just not a message that's out there in the public
4: right now. So the good news is you can delete the calorie counting app, probably. (laughs) That's the good news.
2: You know, and the the corollary of the calorie, right, as a single metric, single measurement, is the body mass index, right? This idea, people abbreviate it BMI. And this is the idea that you could take your height and your weight and that that ratio tells you really a whole lot about your health. How would you think about that, Emma?
3: So... Um, what's kind of important about BMI is it's a proxy for measuring body fat. So there are ways to measure people's body fats. So we can get you in machines and we can tell you exactly what percentage of your body is fat. BMI doesn't do that. It takes, you know, those very common measurements, weight and height, and that's why it's such a common Measure because it is so easy to use to calculate someone's BMI. We all have scales. We all have you know rulers or you know depending on uh, how tall <laughs> we generally you are. know how tall we are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, you know it is a proxy though. So you know a lot of if you talk to anyone kind of working in this area, scientists, doctors, they'll say BMI is not perfect, but it's pretty good for what we need, right? Hmm. So they'll say like, yeah, we know a lot of people with BMI, you know, it may not be quite right to their situation. I mean, the qu- quintessential example of this is a bodybuilder, right? A bodybuilder who, by BMI standards, might qualify for early access to a COVID vaccine, but is actually super fit and in great shape and works out all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that there are people who BMI does not work to assess their health. Um, and arguably, it's actually a pretty poor indicator of our health because it is so reliant on weight. Um, and there's actually a whole school of thought around weight that we've been focusing way too much on the scale, that we need to encourage healthy behaviors, we need to encourage exercise, and that all the focus on the scale is kind of scapegoating weight for all of these problems that we have um, with regards
2: so to people's health. You know, there's a in your podcast series, Losing It. You go to this place called Pennington Biomedical Research Center, which I had never heard of, but it 's attached to lsu right and it 's like two hundred acres and there 's two hundred scientists there in Baton Rouge like what are they what are they doing there? Are they part of this new school of of thinking about weight
3: that 's a great question yeah Pennington is uh, you know I traveled there for the podcast. We set our uh, fourth episode there. Um, It's kind of a fascinating lens to learn about the science of weight loss, right? How are people studying this stuff every day? How do they know how many calories we're burning? How can they, you know, they can actually measure out really calorically precise meals for participants in weight loss studies there. So there's some amazing technology there that helps people study this stuff. Um, But what's really interesting is, you know, I kept, when I was there, kept circling around this sort of, well, we know you know, calories in, calories out can work for people, but it doesn't seem to work in the long term. And why is that? And we're still figuring that out. And, and then I would say, well, what do people, what should people do if they want to lose weight? Well, they should diet. And I was like, but didn't you just spend all this time telling me (laughs) about how diets are, you know, they're not the whole truth. We know there's stuff we don't understand still. And they're like, well, yeah, but it's the best answer we have right now. And Mm. I think that sort of um, gets at some of the intricacies of sort of what we're talking about here, which Mm -hmm. is that we're being given an answer to a question we don't have the answer for. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of the issues in this space
2: begin. Let's uh, listen to a Pennington scientist describe kind of the experimental setup that's really necessary to do a kind of calories in, calories out uh, experiment.
0: We've actually had studies where people live there. And they sleep in those hospital-like beds. They're living in a what looks like a hospital ward. They're interacting with a lot of nurses. And um, the, they do not have a refrigerator that they have free access to. They cannot
2: order up snacks. So in that kind of setup, right, the basic calories in, calories out idea, like you can measure all the calories people are burning. You can measure all the food that's going in. They, people will lose weight in that setting, right?
3: Right. And the key part is people will lose weight for a short term period of time because, you know, as anyone listening to this uh, show right now can attest, you cannot spend your whole life living at Pennington, right? (laughs) Uh, So you got to get out at some point. And once people do that, that is where the trouble really begins, right? We know, and this is true of diet studies more generally, that we know in the short term, People do lose weight when they diet. Um, but the problem is that over time, as sort of the period of weeks and months turn into years, most people do not keep weight loss off. And that's just a fact. Like there are a lot of debates about sort of why that is. And we can certainly talk about that today. But the fact of the matter is, study after study after study has shown that. And that is very well established at yeah. this point.
4: And, you know, Emma just mentioned uh, earlier, weight is a scapegoat. And I think that. One of the reasons uh, we can do that in a in a lab setting is that we don't have all the temptations of the real world.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. What people in your podcast and I think broadly in this field call the obesogenic environment of the United States, just that like it's. Very easy to gain weight here, and it's very hard to lose it. Uh, We're talking about the science and industry of dieting with two Bloomberg Health reporters. Emma Court is the host of the podcast series Losing It, and Kristen Brown is the editor. Have you broken free... Of the Diet Industrial Complex. We'd love to hear your story. Number's 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. And the email's forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the science and industry of dieting with two Bloomberg health reporters who've made a podcast losing it about this very topic. And, of course, the host, Kristen Brown, is the editor. Uh, Kristen, we can't really talk about weight loss without talking about what sparks the desire to lose weight. Of course, there's health. We know that. But there's also these body ideals that people aspire to. And we also know that being thin or slim, thick or whatever the, the current you know, rage is, we know that these ideals change through time, right?
4: Yes. Uh, slim, thick, by the way. I had not heard that one. <laughs> um, so, So Emma did a lot of digging into where the origins of our current modern dieting ideas come from. And they're really tied to... Um, the rise of the industrial revolution, actually. And around this time, people started, you know, obviously moving less. But also around this time, we started getting the, the beauty ideals that we have currently today. And um, I think that in, in our current environment, we're starting to see a little bit of change, right? You know, you see different types of models, Mm -hmm. in ads but but it's it's really hard to to shake that idea that that we should be thin even even as the ideals are starting to change it's just they they haven't quite gotten there and i think that one thing we're starting to realize is that it's going to take a long time for that culture to fully shift yeah and emma
2: too there's racial and class dimensions kind of baked in right from the very beginning of these body ideals yeah Yeah.
3: Yeah. And in fact, you know, we talk about this in our second episode, which looks at the history of um, sort of the thin beauty ideal um, and look at sort of um, there's a uh, professor out in California named Sabrina Stringer, and she does a lot of research about sort of the history of these ideals as it relates to race. And she traces the changing beauty ideals actually to the slave trade and sort of the attempts of Europeans and white people to basically justify their superiority and say, you know, slaves are not in control of their appetites. I'm paraphrasing her here, Mm -hmm. um, and that white people are, and that she traces that to the change in beauty ideals and the emphasis on a new thin ideal. I thought it was really fascinating. You know, her work is incredible, because when we talk about diet, you know, people often talk about diet culture as being oppressive, right? And we're talking about literal oppression playing into that dynamic as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: You, this, um, this topic is really, is really tough, too, because we do get people who have come to their own compromises or their own sense of sort of what is, what is right. Uh, and I want to just read you one um, tweet in tweets. Our society minimizes the difficulty of losing weight and treats people not conforming to its unrealistic standards badly. Women especially so, but also men. However, I'm tired of hearing that one can, quote, be healthy at any weight, and, quote, losing weight is impossible because such is not true. Reduce your caloric input and increase your caloric usage, and you will lose weight. Keep on doing so, but not as much so, and you will keep it off. As for, quote, healthy at any weight, no, we are made of matter, and the amazing arrangements that work best for us have physical components. Um, What would you say to that, Kristen Brown?
4: Yeah, I mean I think that I completely understand where that person is is getting those ideas because those are the ideas that are in our culture. I mean, I have had a doctor, you know, uh I'm on the mic. I'm uh not not on camera so you can't speak. I'm a, I'm a little curvy, right? Um but I have had a doctor tell me that I need to lose weight for my health even though I'm a person who can run 10 miles, right? So, and I, I think of myself as a healthy person. I eat healthfully, and um, we have doctors, you know, enforcing these ideas that in order to be healthy, you need to be thin. But that is just not what the science shows. This is a case of correlation, not causation. Sometimes higher weights are correlated with poor health outcomes. But when you really dig into it, there, there are other things that are probably... You know not just possibly but probably the responsibility of those poor health outcomes you know if you're if you're exercising if you're eating well you can be healthy no matter what the number on the scale shows that is that is just what the science supports i don't know if you have something to add emma
3: yeah i think what i i would emphasize is that we've been told like in society by our culture constantly that if you're heavier you're unhealthy and that you have to lose weight to be thinner and i think there are some big questions about that, specifically with regard to sort of, you know, whether we are focusing on weight and not looking at some of the implications of weight around sort of exercise and healthy eating and things like that. Um, And it's really difficult to tease those things out, right? Because when people go on diets, they exercise, they tend to exercise and they tend to eat healthier, right? Because that's how we tell people to diet in society. Um, and there are a lot of questions, too, about sort of, you know, scientists and doctors are concerned about people carrying around extra fat. Um, it puts pressure on your body, they say, including on sort of your joints and your muscles um, and can lead to inflammation and other sort of health, uh, mm-hmm. health outcomes tied to that. Um, but it's, they're not 100 percent sure exactly what's going on there and why extra fat is bad for you so there are a lot of questions about established weight science even when you hear the dogma extra weight is bad for you all the time there remain to be questions about that but i also worry that we emphasize weight at the expense of um, disincentivizing people from performing those healthy behaviors like exercise like healthy eating right i think typically we think of weight As a window into those healthy behaviors, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I interviewed the founders of Noom, the founder of Noom for our podcast, and he said, you know, health is a way to get people, you know, weight is a way to get people to care about their health. But I worry that we haven't thought enough about the other side of that, which is when people are doing those right things, they're exercising, they're eating healthy, and they don't lose weight, what happens then? And I think our podcast starts to ask, these important questions and I think as a
4: society we need to as well. And I think that tweet is an example of just how much you we really need to do the work to shift that conversation, right? That health is the thing that needs to come first. You might need to improve your health but that does not necessarily mean you need to lose weight and that message just isn't isn't out there in any any big way. We don't have weight-neutral models of health.
2: So this is um goes into sort of the next branch of your of your podcast that I want to talk about. And it's it's something you dive really deeply into. And that is the people who've sort of taken the things that are in our culture about wanting to lose weight and and transmuted them into diets as products. This is something I really actually hadn't thought that much about before I listened to your podcast. Of course you you know that there's all these different diet plans out there, but that they are actually productized so the South Beach diet is one that you go really into. And it, you know, it was just a, a, sen- a set of sensible food recommendations, basically. You know, he- healthy proteins and eat some vegetables and whole grains and all that stuff. But it got its own brand and marketing and mythos. So I want to listen in just to some of the tape uh, from your podcast of the branding from that era. Real weight loss for real people. Go to SouthBeachDiet.com today. You'll rev up your metabolism for even faster weight loss. i the doctor behind the revolutionary South Beach diet. I'm
1: a real person. I lost nine pounds in 22 22-
2: I mean, who doesn't want to rev up your metabolism? Um, (laughs) um, So talk to me a little bit about going into and trying to figure out, like, how did this set of food recommendations turn into the product, the South Beach Diet?
3: Yeah. Um, So I, uh, for that episode, I actually flew down to Miami, and I met with the founder of the South Beach Diet, who is a cardiologist named Arthur Agatston. And that was a really cool experience, and I actually – you know, took my podcasting equipment and went with him while he boxed on a private island off the coast of Miami. So I would highly recommend uh, tuning in if only to hear uh, that part of the episode, but hopefully more. Um, But yeah, so the story of the South Beach Diet really begins with Arthur Agatston. He's working as a cardiologist at a hospital. You know, he's always been a thin guy, but he's gained some weight. And he decides to go on a diet at the time. You know, very much it was sort of low fat city, right? Uh, You know, low fat yogurt at the grocery store, uh, low fat, uh, you know, frozen yogurt. And he's sort of like, this isn't this doesn't work for people. You know, I want to take a different approach. You know, Atkins is starting to come into into the picture here Mm -hmm. and he tries a low carb diet. He loses weight. He thinks, let's help our patients with it. And he, you know, from then on, he develops that, this diet with um, a nutritionist at his hospital and ends up writing a book about it.
2: So interesting. And that book, as I understand it, did so 23 million copies, in part because of all these sort of celebrity endorsements that came in. Let's just listen in to, uh, to one more cut on this. This is uh, Tammy Booth Corwin, who became editor-in-chief of Rodale, which is a huge— publisher at least was at the time and they published the south beach diet book
1: so he went on a book tour and he looked great and people were asking him you look great and he said i think it was in new york magazine he said i'm on the south beach diet and from there sales skyrocketed
2: can anyone guess out there you guys don't have to answer you know the answer obviously but the person was bill clinton we had like uh in uh, this you know eminent political figure in this country talking about the diet that he was on during this time. And it's one reason, Emma, why you call this kind of like the golden age of the diet, right, where just so many people are on a diet. And not only that, but talking about that as well.
3: Right. And this was also a period of time when you can maybe remember the beauty standards from that time. We're talking like crop tops. We're talking low rise jeans, The fashion was to be very thin, and the clothing styles accentuated those features. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it was the time, you know, Atkins, the South Beach diet, uh, you know, around that time, I think Beyonce was doing that crazy juice cleanse, if you remember. Like, I'm sure you can, anyone listening to this can remember, like, at least half a dozen, like, diet trends from that time, because there were so many.
4: Uh, I really hope low-rise jeans never come back. I really,
3: really <laughs> I, hope. I think they're I don't
2: coming know. Back, I've been guys. monitoring the streets. I think uh, I think it may have happened. Um, they're back. They're back. Let's, <laughs> let's bring in um, some callers. There's a bunch of people lining up. Uh, Camelia uh, in Sebastopol.
1: Hi. Thanks for taking my call and thank you for this topic. Um, my question and comment is around kind of the intrinsic motivation that people have to lose weight or get healthy. Mm. Um, and how mental health and spirituality play into it. I know from my own experience, I was about kind of chronically 30 pounds overweight after I had my kids. And um, one day I was looking at myself in the mirror and realized that what I said to myself was, you're disgusting. Mm. And it was like a really common, really sad, really common way that I would speak to myself. And it was the moment I realized that my motivation to lose weight was self-hate and disgust, not love, and switching that for me, like going on this really intense mission of looking in the mirror and saying, hey, I love you. I love your body. I love your skin. I love that pouch where you grew that baby <laughs> that now mm-hmm. is squishy. And um, and that shift, I basically was able to get the 30 pounds off. I did kind of rely on keto to help kind of kickstart my metabolism or something, but – I really think the shift was my intrinsic motivation and the way that I was treating myself. And I've been able to keep it off more or less just like watching what I eat, but I don't count calories and I'm not a crazy exerciser. So just wondering what your guests would say about so, that and if there's any research yeah. that correlates mental health and spirituality with mm-hmm. health and weight loss.
2: Oh, Camila, I'm glad. The self-love, I'm, I, uh, I'm so happy for you on that score. And I think it's so hard for people and you know, uh, Kristen. Maybe we'll take this one to you. Like, this is kind of the big question. Like, how does one stay motivated to be healthy? Like, what's that intrinsic motivation, as Camelia was was saying, and and how would one build that?
4: Well, it's it's interesting. You know, she's talking about self love, and the the newest diet or I guess anti diet trend is something called intuitive eating, and. It's it's all about those ideas, right? You need to let go of the scale of you know the MyFitnessPal app, and just listen to your body and respect your body, and uh, you you know not take cues from the culture, from whatever the gene style is, but instead take cues from what your body is telling you it needs. And if with practice, you know, right? Because we're also broken now. our ideas, it's hard to listen to your body sometimes or even know what it's telling you, but with practice, you can learn to let your body cue you on how you should be eating and just just respect respect your body and what it's saying. But the tough part of that is that it also means you have to let go of what dieting can do for you, which is give you a specific figure, which is have you drop the baby weight. So... The self-love is is tied with really, really letting go of the idea that you need to lose weight at all.
3: Mm. Yeah, intuitive eating is very much, I mean, the people who practice it, the founders would say, you know, this is not about losing weight. So I think you know, self-love is wonderful and I'm so happy that your listener had a positive experience. Um, but I think it can cut both ways, right? I mean, we talk about this in one of our episodes, the idea of false hope syndrome, um, which is coined by a psychologist and, you know, the idea is that, like, we turn to weight loss and we think losing weight is going to make my life better in all these ways and I'll love myself and I'll get a boyfriend and my boss will finally give me the respect I deserve, right? But, you know... A lot of times people lose weight and their life is kind of still the same, except maybe now they're getting some more compliments and they can fit into a smaller pair of pants. Um, and so I think, you know, we can turn to weight loss as a way of generating outcomes in our life that weight loss may not really be playing a role in.
2: Mm-hmm. Gosh, you know, Steve writes in to say, man, I'm feeling this one, Steve. Uh, I used to think that people regained weight after dieting because they lost their will and fell off their diet. When I was 50, I put myself on a very specific diet that dropped a pound a week, and I went from 200 to 175 pounds. But then I started gaining weight, and it climbed to 185, despite changing nothing in my diet or exercise. The body seems to have its own targets, despite our best efforts. Emma, can you talk about that a little bit? Because there were some scientists at Pennington who tried to sort of address these issues of what we like to call metabolism.
3: Yeah, um, that is a really important anecdote. And thank you to Steve for writing in about that. I think um, this is sort of the big question about, you know, so we know the research says diets don't produce long-term weight loss for most people. And then the question becomes, well, why is that, right? Um, And the common narrative, I think, in the way many people explain it to themselves is, oh, like you know, she stopped doing all the things she had to do, right? She stopped eating as many salads at lunch. She stopped going to the gym all the time, you know? Um, and I think there is a, you know, maybe an element of that in human nature, like once you lose the weight, you might relax a little bit. Um, but there is scientific evidence to show that there are things that change when people diet and lose weight um, within their bodies that can make it very difficult to to maintain weight loss. And I'm speaking specifically about a phenomenon called metabolic adaptation, um, which you know some people may have heard of. There was a very well-publicized big study of Biggest Loser contestants, and it showed that their metabolisms had actually dropped significantly after weight loss, more than would have been expected, um, and it stayed that way for a while. Um, and there have also been studies that looked at changes in hormones involved in hunger and weight regulation. Um, That could also be contributing to weight regain. So I think we know that it's complicated. We probably still have a lot left to learn about that. But I think there is a reason, you know, people overwhelmingly can't keep weight loss off. And there are some scientific theories about sort of people having a weight that their body feels comfortable at. It's called like the set point theory theory. Um, and it's this idea that your body likes to be at, however, 150 pounds, whatever your weight is, right? Um, and when you try to change that, your body's like, mm-mm-mm, I want to go back there.
4: <laughs> no, And if I and if I can just add, you know, there there is this long-term weight loss group that has been studied. But to these people who have kept weight off a long time, they've had to do these really ridiculous things, like lock all their favorite foods in a safe and exercise an hour every single day religiously.
2: I mean, yeah, I... I... I think I have a lot of personal experience with this one. And no matter what I've done, I kind of like am moving within this like 10 pound range over many years, many exercise regimes, many, many diets, all these things. And it's such a fascinating to me. That's always been, you know, an annoying but fascinating part of life. We're talking about the science and industry of dieting with two Bloomberg health reporters. Emma Court is the host of the podcast series Losing It and Kristen Brown is the editor. We're going to take some more of your calls right after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the excellent new podcast series, Losing It, about the science and really the industry of diets and dieting with the two Bloomberg Health Desk members who created it. Emma Court is the host of the podcast series, Losing It, and Kristen Brown is the editor. I wanted to give you guys a chance to kind of address one of these um, comments head on. Daniel writes... Why doesn't anyone want to talk about the elephant in the room? Weren't the majority of people at risk or who died of COVID overweight? Why are we so comfortable demonizing smoking and smokers, but not fat people, when we know that being overweight is more dangerous to our health than smoking?
3: Well, I would argue that we're very comfortable demonizing fat people. In fact, we do it all the time. Um, So, uh, you know, with all respect, I think... We are constantly blaming weight for health problems, um, and it's true that there has been a link discovered during the pandemic between, um, you know, these categories of overweight and obese and COVID outcomes. Um, and I think the question is, you know, is weight the sole contributor there? Could there be other links here? And this ties in pretty nicely with some of the reporting that we've done around sort of the connection between weight and health. And I think you know, it's often presented to us, you know, being heavy is bad for you, right? And the fact of the matter is that there are people who are, you know, weigh a little bit more than is considered so, quote unquote, normal weight by the government, and that they are healthy. They don't have the all of the slew of health problems that, you know, are connected to weight. And there are questions about whether we are turning to weight as the explanation for all of these different diseases. I mean, if you look at the CDC website, like poor quality of life is literally one of the the risks of extra weight. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And whether there can be other factors that help explain that, Um, for instance, poverty, uh, weight discrimination, Mm -hmm. weight cycling, otherwise known as yo-yo dieting, which Mm -hmm. has actually been connected to a whole bunch of poor health outcomes. Um, And the list kind of goes on. Um, But, yeah, I think, look, like, it's not we're not like revolutionizing, you know, we're not like breaking anyone's brains right now by saying, like, you know, weight is thought to be the cause of a lot of poor health outcomes, including death from COVID. I think the question is, are we fully exploring all the other options
2: that could explain it? I think Aaron from Richmond wants to get in on this particular conversation. Aaron, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for taking me. Um, I'm just curious if you can speak to the ways in which being fat is kind of one of the few things that we attach a moral judgment to. We feel like we can comment on people. We can make um, statements relating to when people lose or gain weight and assume something else behind that versus Mm -hmm. if somebody had cancer, you wouldn't assume they made choices in their life necessarily to make them have cancer Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and the ways in which, um, sort of this idea that being fat is bad, and I just don't believe that. Um, As a queer, chubby person, the minute I came out as queer, a lot of the standards that I lived with uh, in the 80s and 90s went away because I didn't feel like I needed to fit into this straight, um, white mold. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Aaron, thank you for for sharing that experience. Which which one of you wanted to take that one? I I think it's, it's an excellent point.
3: Yeah, I mean I I I'm happy to to address that. Um thank you so much for sharing your experience. Um I think, you know, this is something that disturbs me a lot. Um and it is something I tried to explore in our podcast episodes, including we have one coming out next week that will look at sort of the complicated relationship between weight and health. But I think the problem is weight is just bound up with so many other things. I mean, it's not just a medical subject, right? It's an issue of like beauty ideals. It's something that's so much more visible than, you know, you might see someone and not know that they have a disease, for instance, um, like diabetes or cancer. But you can look at someone and, you know, often see if they're like a little bit, um, you know, curvier. Um, So I think there's a lot of complicated things at play here. There's an intersection between Uh, race and and gender too, right? People have different experiences of being in bigger bodies if they're women, if they're people of color, that kind of thing. So it's super complicated. I think one thing we really wanted to think about as we approached this podcast series was sort of sympathy. What is it like to live in a bigger body in our society? We tried to infuse that into our podcast as much as possible because frankly, there is a lot of like othering that happens, right? I am thin, and then someone else is not thin, and they should just be like me. I know how to I know how to lose weight. Why don't you know how? You must be all these bad things, right? And,
4: and if I could just add, you know, I, I know we've sort of hit you all over the head with this idea, but I think that one excuse people use for making that kind of moral judgment is we say, oh, you're choosing to be unhealthy. So it comes back to this idea that we think that, being thin inherently means you're healthier and i think Mm -hmm. that that some of that moral judgment some of that stigma might go away if we could flip the script there a little bit
3: and we also think of weight as addressable right why don't you just go on a diet and the fact of the matter is that the literature on dieting is pretty clear in what it tells us which is that for most people dieting does not produce long-term weight loss and i
4: don't think we've grappled with that. Right, and this this misinformation just uh, uh, allows gives permission in some sense for these moral judgments.
2: You know, given all we're saying. I mean, do you think that basically th- this industry or these like diets that have been turned into these diet products that they're like actually actively harming people and given that their history now stretches back many decades? I mean what what should be done? I mean this if if there's something out there that's actively harming people, you know, we've been going after like sodas, does it make sense to say like hey, these these actual marketed products are are hurting people?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of areas uh say say vitamins and supplements that are are not that are also not regulated that can cause harm, but I I I do think that there is not enough scrutiny given to these, to, given to people, you know, including doctors who create these diets and dispense this advice, and it's not necessarily good advice. And but, but there's not really a regulatory structure for intervention, the the way our healthcare system is set up, and the way our regulatory right. system is set up. I think that's something
3: up. you're you're hinting at, Alexis. Is like sort of, are we like telling people? I mean, I think. This is what we argue in the podcast like we're telling people you need to lose weight and we're actually not creating a world in which it's you know doable to eat healthier foods right they're more expensive they're hard to prepare it's not actually doable to exercise when you work really long days your hours are unpredictable you know you live in a neighborhood with no sidewalks right so we're not doing the kinds of systematic Policy interventions that could help people improve their health—we're actually just pointing to people and saying it's all on you.
4: Right, it's all on you, sort of against the odds, because you live in a world, uh, you know, full of delicious, tasty things and long work hours. So you can't get time to get to the gym. So you're—it's all on you, and you have to do it against the odds. And society is not going to change at all.
3: And who could be blamed for falling for a juice cleanse in that environment? Well, and I think
2: you know the message that almost, no, and I think the, the number that you guys gave in the podcast, based on this registry of people who've been able to lose 30 pounds and keep it off for a year or more, you know, it was like one out of every like 12,500 people. It was, it was something on that order. Mm-hmm. Um, when, I, when you think about those odds, you figure like the message is starting to get through for people that, wait, dieting doesn't work. But instead of not dieting, sort of something else is happening, right? Like diets are being rebranded As non diet
3: yeah and that's actually the subject of our new episode which comes out today Uh, it's all about kind of the backlash against dieting Um, you know people are not dieting as much as they used to um, but also looking at sort of what's happening you know people are not letting go of the desire to lose weight they're talking about dieting in different terms now it's a lifestyle intervention it's about holistic health right and we've actually seen dieting comp or sorry, weight loss companies like weight watchers and noom kind of getting in on the action and describing themselves in new ways too
4: yeah weight watchers in case that uh, you this is not common knowledge is now ww now they took the weight out of weight watchers because it's not all about the weight anymore exactly <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> um we ha-
2: Kinds of comments coming in about different programs that have worked for people, different ways that people have adjusted their their lifestyles. But I want to talk about one in particular that you've you focused on, and that is Noom. Um, let's listen in to Noom co-founder Artem Petikov describing what he thinks other diets have have gotten wrong.
4: Most diets are lacking. What what they really lack are the actual mechanism, the how they're telling you what to do, but they're not telling you how to do it. And that's just like having a car without wheels, where it won't go anywhere, because the hard part is the how.
2: You know, and that that comment now in the context of the show makes me think about our earlier caller who was talking about, you know, the sort of intrinsic motivation but Noom isn't really trying to build your intrinsic motivation. It's trying to kind of use an app to get you to the same place, right? I mean, it's trying to use your psychology for you rather than against you. That's the, the sell, at least.
3: I think Noom does try to build people's intrinsic motivation. I think, like, the big question we ask in our episode is sort of like, is it fair of them to say they are not a diet? Um, but, you know, to your point... Like Noom does try to do things like when you sign up and they, they ask you how much weight you want to lose and then they sort of try to get you to connect it to like a reason that's not just like, you know, weighing less sort of like, you know, maybe it'll let you, you know, if you lose weight, you'll be able to run a half marathon or something or you can run around with your grandkids or so they do try to connect it to broader quality of life things, which I think can be quite motivating for people if it's not just about weighing 15 pounds less, but there's a real why associated with it. But, you know, what we're sort of focused on in the episode is they talk with themselves constantly as not a diet. They say we're more than a diet. They say stop yo-yo dieting get lifelong results. Um, That's a direct quote. Um, And the question is like whether a weight loss program can really describe itself as not a diet when it has a calorie tracking feature, when it sorts food into different color coded categories, right? Uh, When, uh, you know, its emphasis is on the scale and uh, producing results um, on the scale.
4: But in some sense, we can't fully blame Noom or uh, the weight loss company formerly known as Weight Watchers for this because it's just the cultural moment we're at in a sense, right? You know, we've recognized that uh, eating slim fast for lunch every day is not a way to live. But, you know, maybe health is the goal instead of just weight. But but we're still not ready to let go of that idea that you might one day fit into those jeans from four summers ago. You know, it's like it's we we are we're talking about health, but we just we can't fully let go of of the old jeans. We just can't.
2: Right, right, and it just seems you know. There's a great uh, newsletter out there called She's a Beast, which is about done uh, by Casey Johnson, and it's like instead of dieting, she's kind of gone to powerlifting, and she's kind of changed the way that she thinks about. What her body is away from the measures of weight and towards the measures, of sort of productive measures, like how much can she lift, what can she do? I always found that like very. Um, I, if you're interested in these things, it's worth checking out. I wanted to get to. Uh, I do want to get to some callers though, because we have a bunch of people. Uh, Jessica and Santa Rosa, welcome.
6: Hi, thank you for taking my call. I was actually. Can you hear me?
2: Yeah, sure can. Go ahead.
6: Oh, sorry. I've never called in before. So um, I was actually on my way to a certain meeting, or they call them—I um, guess uh, uh, whatever it is—I can't think right now. But I wanted to bring up one thing I haven't heard is the issue of food addiction, sugar addiction. Um, it's all part of the kind of industrial food complex, our culture, all of that. And as someone who actually discovered that I'm an—I'm an alcoholic through weight uh, through this uh, WW actually 12 years ago, and I'm in recovery for 12 years. Thank you very much. Um, I listen in on the meetings. I still go every week and I've maintained over 40 pounds off for about six years now. Um, Mm. But I still haven't gotten to the quote unquote goal weight because I'm not sure that it really matters to me anymore. Um, But the one thing I do notice people talking about is like all the emotional attachments to food and maybe it is back to that mental health um, more deep. Like why are we using food to deal with our feelings? And I think That's what makes it hard, in addition to just the material, not knowing how much to eat. I mean, I grew up in a household where they piled on the spaghetti to eat, you know, and we didn't have a lot of money, and that's what we did. And when I first went to WW and saw what a serving of pasta was, I almost cried. So – and I, I work with babies and families, and they don't know what to serve. And so it's more I agree with everything I'm hearing. I'm excited about this podcast that um, you ladies, thank you, women, um, are, are providing. I'm going to listen to today's episode. And one last thing. I really, really like the Hidden Brains, uh, uh, recent one on reframing reality. There was a researcher from Stanford who talked about mindset and there's actual physical changes and we change our mindset about weight loss and about exercise that was
4: fascinating so thank Hmm. you I just wanted to bring up that issue yeah
2: thanks so much Jessica Do you guys want to respond to that
4: yeah I mean one one thing she brought up was the the emotional attachment we have to food and one of the most interesting ideas I think that um, of the intuitive eating movement is that that's okay right and i think one one thing that making this podcast really did for me is it did help me reframe the way i think about food about calories this is fuel for your body and it should be pleasure and you know intuitive eating says you know what if you had a hard day at the office and you need that slice of chocolate cake d- do it it's there for you right and it, it, when you talk about when you start talking about addiction that's that's a different thing right but but there's this idea that if you listen to what your body needs, you can balance, you know, when you really need that slice of chocolate cake because it was a hard day with, mm-hmm. you know, I also need the salad so my body gets the right fuel and so I feel good.
2: Emma, uh, let me ask you this from one of our listeners. Diego writes, and maybe this is where the podcast is going, where it's going to land. Diego writes, why aren't we basing health on metrics like the following? Blood pressure, A1C, cholesterol levels, resting heart rate. I mean, you could add other ones, like your functional threshold power and your VO2 max. Aren't these metrics more important than than weight?
3: That is a great question. And that's exactly what the researchers we talked to in our next episode argue. They argue that we have ways of measuring people's health. We know how to do blood work and we can tell them what's going on in their bodies. Um, I think the problem is there's this very prevalent idea among Researchers that when you are, you know, in this sort of like overweight or obese category of BMI that you are sort of at risk of developing these medical conditions down the line. So even if you look good today by these like blood work standards that we don't know what's going to happen to you in the future. Um, However, uh you know there is a little bit of i think scare tactics involved in that argument right like you know you look good today but who knows what's going to happen in the future we never know what's going to happen in the future and i think a lot of our emphasis on weight is sort of can we control the future can we control what happens to you can we make sure you have a good life right and i think we all want that for ourselves for each other for our family Um, but we can't guarantee it even if you're thin that's just a fact
2: We have been talking about the science and the industry of dieting and weight loss with two Bloomberg health reporters. Emma Court is the host of the podcast series Losing It's New from Bloomberg episode still coming out. Kristen Brown is the editor. Wanted to uh, get to one uh, one last comment here, and that is just to say Larry, who's been doing calorie counting for a long time, says that it has worked for him. And that he spent, you know, a lot of his life working on these issues. And, you know, shout out to, uh, to Larry. This has been Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you for all of your calls and comments. We couldn't get to nearly as many of them as I wanted to. But stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.